Welcome to the burning zone. All around us there is ever-increasing fear. That's a major reason why there's so much hate and rage spewing from so many people. They lash out because they're afraid. We need courage to live in this world because things are going to get much worse. But where is that courage to be found? Well, tomorrow night is the Academy Awards. Um, it's an important event in large part because it's the face of Hollywood. Uh, it's the face that Hollywood wants to show to the world. Charm, beauty, glamour, emotion, uh, it's just an amazing event, isn't it? The only minor quibble is that often it's boring as all get up. Um, it is live, which makes it really interesting because there's always the possibility for a disaster of one sort or another. The producers work hard for this not to happen. Um, they do create a pretty polished, pretty polished evening. When they see the awards around the world, many people think that this is what Hollywood is all about. But for those of us who have been in Hollywood for a while, we know it isn't what it's about. If there is one word that describes the heart of the entertainment industry, what would it be in your mind? Uh, many would say celebrity or fame. Uh, many would say money. If you are really blind and idealistic, you might even suggest creativity. Um, if that's you, dream on, dreamer. You can have that fantasy in your mind until you make your first deal. After many years of experience here, I would tell you that I believe there's one word that describes Hollywood completely. And that word is power. In the industry, there's a palpable aura of power around certain people. Many are celebrities, but not all. From 1984 to 1989, I was at Universal Television on the MCA Universal lot. These were the final years of Lou Wasserman. Uh, he was the one who ran that place. And Mr. Wasserman was the last of the great old Hollywood moguls. Uh, everything that happened on that lot was an expression of his personal interests and his control. Lou Wasserman had real power. If there was a labor strike going on in the industry, he would summon all the heads of the studios, the networks, and the unions to his home where he would arbitrate a deal between all of them. If he called the White House, there wasn't a president who wouldn't return his call. A whole mythology has grown up about the power he wielded and how he got it. I never met Mr. Wasserman. I was just a lowly writer-producer on one of his TV series. But I saw him many times at the, the commissary there on the, the lot. Uh, he always dressed exactly the same way. He was a tall, rather gaunt man with a huge amount of silver hair. He wore black horn-rimmed glasses, a black suit, a white shirt, and a dark tie every single day of his life. I think he actually went to bed in them. <laughs> you know, for us lowly serfs, he appeared to be a rather kindly and benevolent man. Uh, but he was an absolute dictator. He was the lord of the manor, and MCA Universal was stable in his hands. Many people worked there for many years. From what I have heard, those who worked directly for him experienced some real brutality. He was famous for hiring two men as vice presidents and giving them both the same responsibilities over the same areas. He expected them to fight it out, the strongest one advancing to the highest level. It was a Darwinian management philosophy of survival of the fittest. During my time in the Wasserman years, such actions at the top did not affect me at all. The executives I dealt with were wonderful. They gave me the greatest freedom that I experienced in Hollywood. I came back to the studio several years after Mr. Wasserman was gone. The company had been sold and resold. Senior management was totally different. At the top, people with creative vision had been replaced by accountants. All stability and clarity had vanished. The dog pack was eating each other. Gone from them was the aura of power. Raw power is at the heart of the kingdom of Hollywood. And it is at the heart of all the kingdoms of this world. The source of that power is very clear. It's stated clearly in the Bible. Do you remember the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness? The last of Satan's three tests very significant as it relates to power. It's found in Matthew 4, 8 through 10. It goes like this. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the earth and their glory. 
And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Raw power is the stock in trade of the great lords of darkness. According to the statement Satan made to Jesus, he gives power to whomever he chooses. Yet in the book of Romans, St. Paul is very clear that God is the one who establishes governments and gives them authority. How do you put that together? I can't fully answer that, except to say that in spite of his best efforts, Satan can only do what God permits on a global level in your life and mine. That comes out of the book of Job as well as many other places in Scripture. Satan knows this, and he must be rather frustrated. Whatever appears to be freedom for him, it's really not there for very long. It's going to be gone. It's my experience in Hollywood that Satan grooms certain individuals to receive power. In so many cases, when you scratch the surface of a powerful person's life in this industry, you see in their past an utterly destructive family that has instilled a destructive and horrible self-image, an image of worthlessness. This sense of worthlessness in a bright, forceful person breeds a desperate desire for success and a never-ending attempt to prove their worth. It can also breed rage, addiction, and brutality. Very often, the father image that these people have is really horrible. One major star with whom I worked closely had such a background. His parents had abandoned him in childhood. He had been raised by his grandparents who did two things. They beat him regularly and they took him to church. Consequently, he was a very major star and he still is one. He hated Christianity and Christians and he hated all male authority figures. Deep inside, there was and is in him a burning, self-destructive anger. That's the kind of preparation for power that Satan likes. A number of years ago, a good friend of mine was commissioned to write the authorized biography of a major director. If I said his name, he would know it instantly. This amazingly talented person is spiritually diseased on a deep level, and he spreads his infection to the world. But my friend told me that after knowing how he grew up, and what his family was like. He's amazed that the guy is still able to get out of bed in the morning. That's how much damage that this individual carries. The stories go on and on. There are thousands of such people here in Hollywood, people whom God loves and wants to save and heal. In their broken and destructive condition, they can be physically attractive. They can be utterly charming. To meet them, you would never know what lies beneath the surface but they have been carefully prepared by the most brutal master of all. To such damaged human beings, Satan entrusts the power of world culture creation. The church is the expression of God's heavenly kingdom here on earth. It stands in opposition to Satan's control of people and world culture. Now notice I didn't say that it stands in opposition to world culture, only to Satan's control of it. That's an important distinction often lost on Christians. The church is at war with the powers of darkness for the souls of men and women. That is not a theoretical war. It is an actual war that is more real than any physical conflict by any human army. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church. When he gave his Holy Spirit, it wasn't just to make Christians feel good when they worship. That seems to be a spiritual priority for most people today. He gave his spirits that we would have the power to advance the good news of eternal salvation into all the world in order that the prisoners of darkness might be set free. And there are plenty of them right here in Hollywood. Now, there are some Christians who just don't like the militaristic analogies of the New Testament. I remember one time I was teaching a Bible study and I used a number of military analogies from my own background. Uh, there was somebody up front, a guy who got up and just literally started screaming rebukes at me because I was using these illustrations. And then it got interesting because the woman who had brought him that night was sitting toward the back. She got up and started rebuking him, screaming at him. So we had a war going on right in the middle of the Bible study. It was fascinating. <laughs> now, whether we're comfortable with 
Those kind of analogies are not. The reality is that Jesus is at war. All those who are true disciples of his are soldiers in his great army. And that is an army of liberation. But in this war, our weapons are not the same as those used by the armies of this world. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 to 5 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to carry the battle into enemy territory. But what is this power of heaven supposed to look like in the lives of Jesus' followers? What weapons are legitimate for us to use in this conflict? Christian people have made so many mistakes in their answers to that question over the years. Over and over, we have tried to use the weapons of the world to defeat Satan. As I have said in the past, I was at Universal during the last temptation of Christ fiasco. Probably a lot of you are too young to remember that. This is a time when Christians decided to flex their muscles to keep Universal from distributing Martin Scorsese's pitiful, boring little film uh, called The Last Temptation of Christ. I was there at Universal when Bill Bright, the president of Campus Crusade for Christ, famously offered $10 million to buy the negative so it wouldn't be released. Though well-intentioned, he depended on the power of money to prevail, thereby insulting all the artists involved in the film and by his offer essentially calling them whores who would be quick to jump at cold cash. In my opinion, what happened during that awful period in the late 1980s set the cause of Christ back in this industry by decades. Why? The church was trying to use the weapons of the flesh, and that is still happening. For several months, we have been studying statements made by Jesus about the power of heaven, what it is and what it brings. Normally, people don't think about these statements as statements of power, but that's exactly what they are. If you remember, the first one went like this, filled with makarios. That's a Greek word that means godlike joy that the world cannot take away. Are heaven's beggars, the poor of spirit, the utterly poor who own nothing because they have given up ownership of everything in their lives, including even their right to themselves and their creative work, if they're creative people, into the hands of God. Filled with godlike joy are those who forsake that which is dearest to them in this world because of love for Jesus and their desire to follow him. It's the first of what are called the Beatitudes. When I went to Vietnam in 1968 as a young infantry lieutenant, I left everything that I knew and loved. I left my wife. I left my family. I left Chicago pizzas. All that I possessed, all that I loved, with no guarantee that I would return at all to reclaim any of it. In one sense, I gave up ownership of it. I can tell you that for a year while I was gone, I was both poor in spirit and in actuality. I lived in mud and dirt, but it was necessary to be a warrior. Jesus requires no less. Now, there are a lot of Christians who think that that's just a bit too radical. They believe that you can be a true follower of Jesus without forsaking much of anything. Here's what he had to say about it in Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 33. Now a great multitude went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. It was words like that that made many people turn away from him. 
And so it is today. This forsaking is a choice that comes from the very center of the intellect, the emotion, and the will. It doesn't mean that God takes everything from you that you love. It means that you are forsaking everything you love into his hands, and he can do anything with it that he wants. With this forsaking, you become a steward of the things that you love, yet no longer own. In this transference of ownership, there are no hidden deals with God, no caveats in the contract, no quid pro quo. I'll give you all of this, Lord, if you do this for me. It's a gift based on love and trust. Now, Christians talk ad nauseum about faith. Well, this is what real faith is all about. Such a commitment made once and constantly renewed in spite of anything that happens in life is the heart of heaven's power that God wants for each one of us. It is exactly the same commitment that Jesus made to his Father in owning nothing. Everything in God's kingdom then becomes ours. In 2 Corinthians 6.10, St. Paul describes this lifestyle. He says that he owns nothing, yet possesses everything. We talked about this several times ago together. What's the alternative to living this way. And there is only one alternative. The alternative is having all the things that you love and possess own you and eventually losing them anyway. We came into this world with nothing and we leave it with nothing. In the mid-1980s, a friend of mine who was at the time a major TV star told me that he was spending $25,000 a month on cocaine. This is in the mid-1980s. How much would that be worth today? What, what was this man thinking? He isn't a star anymore. He lost it all. Some people are projecting that Whitney Houston, with all her amazing talent, wasted $100 million. Appearing to own everything, yet in reality possessing not one thing of permanence, and eventually losing it all. So that first statement that Jesus made is vital to all believers, especially those who are here in Hollywood. Filled with godlike joy are heaven's beggars. Now, I believe that the other seven statements that Jesus made after this one are all built on that foundation. If the first one isn't true of you and me, let's forget about the rest. As I said, the church has given these statements the boring name of the Beatitudes, because we like to compartmentalize, we have a tendency to look at them as separate from each other. You know, we try to figure out which one might sort of describe us, hoping that maybe one of them will, you know. Uh, you know, it's sort of like this. Well, I'm kind of merciful once in a while. I mean, I don't always give the finger when somebody cuts me off in the freeway. I'm not really greedy except for about shoes for women or electronic gear for guys, you know. So I'm sort of poor in spirit. Isn't that true? I mean, does that count? This just isn't the way it works. When the first of Jesus' statements really starts to be operative in your life and mine, through love for him, all the others will begin to describe us as we grow in him. This is a lifelong process, friends. But if we really love him, it should be at work in our lives right now. Think of it this way. When because of love you have given up ownership of your life and everything in, into Jesus, fear itself begins to fade away. All that you could lose, you have given to him. It doesn't belong to you anymore. Not even your sins, as we talked about in the past. Yes, he owns your sins too. So you've got to be poor as a sinner. You don't, you don't, you don't even have the right to own your own sins. You gave them to him. The result is that you are no longer locked in fear by looking only at yourself. The guilt is gone, friends. You can't have big guilt over sin that doesn't belong to you anymore. Your possessions, your needs are no longer the focus of your whole life. Isn't this liberating, the very idea of it? You know, when you aren't staring at yourself, your eyes begin to open to reality. One result is that you start to see what sin is doing in the world around you. How it is crushing and enslaving people. You become much more aware of how your sin breaks the heart of your God. So this foundation of being poor in spirit leads to Jesus' second statement. 
filled with godlike joy that the world cannot take away are those who wail and mourn and grieve. That's what those words mean. The Greek word means that that's the, the word that is translated mourn in our versions. But wail and grieve for what? First, for the selfish evil in your own life. Wailing and grieving for your own sin. And that becomes clearer and clearer to you as you follow him. That kind of mourning leads to a lifestyle of repentance. And true fear of the Lord comes with it. As he begins to reveal his holiness and what it cost him to save you. It's strange, but when we start to see God in this way, our view of other people changes. We lose our defensiveness and our competitiveness. We stop being so easily insulted. For the first time, we see the broken hearts of those around us. Slowly, we learn how to wail and grieve for the plight of lost people, the enslaved, the suffering, the dying, whom God places right in our path. Through grieving into our hands comes the heavenly weapon of compassion. In that kind of mourning, God shows us human needs that we can fill. He begins to open our eyes to the power that he will give us to continue the work that Jesus started. What was that work? At the very beginning of his ministry, what did he say that work was all about? It's found in Luke 4, verses 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus read, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord, the power of heaven, is given to those who are poor in spirit and to those who mourn. Why? So we can overcome the powers of darkness and finish the work that Jesus started. Those are bold statements. How do we know that they're true? The proof is found in a strange place. I believe it's found in the third of the eight statements that Jesus made. And it's found in Matthew 5, 5. And this is one of the least understood and most repudiated ideas on earth. Here it is. Blessed, remember the word is makarios, which means filled with godlike joy that the world can't take away, are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Power, uh, we talked about power. What in the world could that have to do with power? Isn't that exactly the opposite of power? As you know, for each of these beatitudes, I come up with the opposite beatitude for the kingdom of Hollywood. After all the years that I've spent in Hollywood, there's really an interesting opposite. And this one's easy. It goes like this. Blessed are the pushy and aggressive who have a short fuse and who don't take crap from anybody, for they shall be stroked and petted, feared and rewarded. That's what power means to the world. Getting what you want. If this third statement of Jesus is about power... What in the world did he mean? Joyful are the meek? How about miserable and cowardly are the meek? In our world, meek means sniveling weakness, gutlessness, a pushover, no spine. Did you anybody happen to see last night uh, the Celebrity Apprentice show? Celebrity Apprentice, they had these guys together and they're doing their usual thing. They have to come in the boardroom, you know, that works. And then Donald Trump pontificates and he tries to make people feel uncomfortable. Well, one of the people was describing somebody else who was one of those participants. And he said about this individual, uh, you know, he's, he's really kind of meek. And it was like suddenly the whole room just lit up. Oh, no, no, he's not really meek. He's just quiet and strong. We wouldn't want to say that he is meek. When I was a boy... So very long ago, on the back page of comic books, which I happen to read rather frequently, there was a particular ad. It showed the cartoon of a skinny teenage kid on a beach. He's interested in a beautiful girl, but just as he gets up enough courage to talk to her, a muscle-bound bully pushes him away. In disgrace, he falls on his butt and can only watch as the bully gets the chick. Now, what was being sold to all of us kids a cheesy piece of rubber exercise equipment. It was like a strap that you pulled, and you know, it was sort of this kind of deal. And it was supposed to build you in a couple of weeks into a powerhouse. Now, what they showed you, and they didn't show you that strap. 
What they showed you was what you would be like after you used that strap for a couple of weeks. At the bottom of the page was another cartoon with the same skinny kid, but now he's bulked out. He shoves the bully away and he gets the girl who looks up at him in romantic awe. Was there a 12-year-old boy who didn't get suckered into buying one of those? I bought one. I bought one. And it certainly worked for me. Look at the beautiful girl I got. (laughs) Well, maybe it wasn't fully because of the ad and that rubber strap. You know, we we have a hard time with this idea of meekness, don't we? Years ago, I had a very uncomfortable and disturbing experience. I had been hired by a company that was a subsidiary of MGM. They had brought me in to be a showrunner of a new TV series they were creating. It was based on a major motion picture of the past, and part of my job was to write the pilot episode. Another part of my job was to hire writers and guide them through the whole creation process of the individual episodes that would follow the pilot. I began to do this. The managing partner of this production company was a man who had a reputation for being a bully. He had a number of series in production on the lot, and everyone working for him was terrified of him. I had no problem with him. I mean, as the weeks passed and I began my work, everything was great between the two of us. Uh, To write one of the episodes, I brought in an old friend of mine, a professional writer who had worked for me in the past. We spent several weeks breaking a story and working out the details. Then he, he wrote up a treatment and I polished it. After that, I sent it over to this executive. The guy asked for a meeting with the writer. Nothing unusual about that. I set it up in my office for the next afternoon. The writer came in and sat down. I was sitting behind my desk when this executive entered. He was carrying the pages that I had sent to him. The instant he walked into my office, he turned toward the writer and literally threw them at him. Then he started swearing at him, telling him that his work was garbage. The word that he used wasn't garbage. My friend described what happens next. What happened next, I don't remember too much about it personally. Apparently, I rose up and it looked like I was going to come over the top of the desk. I informed this executive with quiet intensity that he could scream at me all he wanted. He could throw things at me all he wanted. But never again was he going to scream and throw anything at one of my writers. My friend said he stared at me with wide eyes, and then it looked as though he was shriveling like the Wicked Witch in The Wizard of Oz. The meeting ended soon thereafter. Much to my chagrin, the word about what happened raced through all the other show staffs. (laughs) Apparently, no one had ever stood up to this little martinet. Unfortunately, in spite of my best efforts on his staff, uh, our relationship changed. Uh, He was terrified of me, and everyone on his staff knew it. He told all the other people he was terrified of me. A few weeks later, I left the series by my own choice. He might be frightened, but frightened cowards are dangerous. And I didn't want to have to keep watching my back. But how does something like that relate to what Jesus said? What I did uh, certainly doesn't appear to be meek. Uh, There are many Christians who would be appalled by what I did. They would say that I should have gently requested that he not throw things and swear instead of making it appear that I was going to tear him limb from limb. I still do pray for him. Does that, uh, that make it okay? Um, what did the people of Israel in Jesus' day understand about power? Maybe that will help us understand what he meant by meekness. In his day, there was an overwhelming force in total control of of the Jewish nation. That force was so powerful that nothing could stand against it. It was the Roman army. From his earliest childhood, Jesus would have seen that oppressive army in operation. The Jews deeply hated Roman soldiers, and Roman soldiers hated Jews. Anti-Semitism isn't new. To the Romans, Jews were animals. Units of the Roman army were dispersed all over Israel. It appears from archaeological evidence that a Roman garrison was stationed very near Nazareth. That's exactly where Jesus grew up, isn't it? Soldiers would have been in his town constantly. 
He would have observed them from his earliest childhood. Do you remember when Philip went to Nathanael and said, we found the Messiah, and Nathanael turned and said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? One reason for that statement might have been that there was a common understanding about Nazareth. Anyone who lived there was probably a collaborator with the Romans since they were stationed so close by. They would be traitors if you came from Nazareth. The Romans were masters and the Jews were the slaves. The power of the Roman army was based on rigid discipline and constant training. When you enlisted as a soldier in the Roman army, your period of enlistment was usually 25 years, and you didn't get out because you were tired and bored. The first thing a Roman soldier was trained to do was march fast and close together with others. No stragglers were allowed. In summer months, units trained by quick marching, wearing armor, carrying heavy iron shields the size of a man, along with packs and weapons. The march was 18 and a half miles, and they had to do it in five hours. When they got to their destination, they had to be ready to fight. Of course, there was also endless weapons training, physical training, to fight in specific formations. There was swimming. It went on and on. Their training was rigorous and constant to keep them in fighting peak. Roman soldiers were lethal, brutal men. Their approach to shock and awe was simple. In conquest, they utterly destroyed the enemy by killing, raping, and enslaving everything that moved. In a Roman legion, there were 6,000 of these soldiers. A legion was divided into 60 centuries, each with 100 men. In command of each century was a centurion. Imagine what kind of a man would be chosen to lead such brutal fighters. The Roman historian Polybius describes what centurions should be like. They must not be so much venturesome seekers after danger as men who can command, steady in action, and reliable. They ought not to be over-anxious to rush into the fight. But when hard-pressed, they must be ready to hold their ground and die at their posts. In order to have the respect of his men, a Roman centurion had to be the bravest of the brave. That was why he had been elevated to that position. The Greek word that Jesus used that is translated meek was used in different ways in his time. It was used to describe medicine that would control a burning fever, a gentle breeze on a hot day, a wild horse that had been broken. All of these words, were in, the word meek in their language was used to describe all of this. All of these words imply one thing, power under control. Medicine can be so strong it kills a patient. A breeze can become a hurricane. An unbroken horse is useless, useless for any kind of work and potentially dangerous. So here is our statement. Filled with godlike joy are those with power under control. What power? The power of heaven that comes from the Holy Spirit. Co-laboring with women and men who have given everything to him to accomplish the great commission of Jesus Christ. But what does this meekness, this amazing power under control, look like in a specific human being? Other than Jesus himself, there is a startling illustration of it in the Gospels. It is found in Luke chapter 7. I'll start with verse 1. Jesus entered Capernaum, and a certain centurion servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving, for he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them. And when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that follow him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent, returning to the house, found the servant well, who had been sick. 
a centurion, the bravest of the brave, a powerful leader of brutal men, committed to fighting the enemy to the death. Not a single person would have called that centurion a weak coward. Not only would he have been physically strong, he would have been skilled in every aspect of warfare, a veteran probably of many hellish battles, a man respected by his soldiers. And beyond all of that, he had the whole power of Rome behind him. Theoretically, that centurion had the power to send a team of soldiers and bring Jesus to his house by force. But something had happened to that man. We don't know how and we don't know when. The Jewish elders who knew him, who hated Romans, called him righteous. All through the Bible, how does a person become righteous? First of all, by repenting of your sins. And there's no true repentance without sorrow. This centurion had repented, and as God had worked in his life, the amazing, unnatural compassion of heaven had been given to him. The impossible had happened. As a Roman soldier, he grew to love Jews, even though they would have considered him an unclean dog and wouldn't have deigned to come into his house. He built them a synagogue, apparently with his own money. He had compassion for a slave, though a Roman, to a Roman, a slave was nothing more than a farming tool. And you got rid of it as soon as it got useless. When Jesus approached the house of this powerful Roman, the man sent word to him, I'm not worthy for you to even step inside. I understand where your authority and power come from. Just say the word and it will be done. The crowds around Jesus heard all of this. They saw in that Roman utter abject humility. And clearly this centurion didn't care who saw and heard about it. The whole humiliating spectacle was open to everyone. His humility was the natural expression of his faith. And there's no true faith without it. He understood himself. He knew exactly what power he had. He wasn't afraid of it. He accepted his power but he realized that he was only a steward of it. And he was not embarrassed to bow in front of everyone to a far greater power represented by a poor Jewish teacher. Filled with godlike joy are those with the power of heaven at work in their lives who live under God's control. And what is the primary evidence of that power? Is it the mighty use of your spiritual gifts? Is it the amazing scripts that you're going to write that you might make into films, stuff that might even be talking about Jesus directly? Oh, is it huge numbers that see your work in the media or hear you speak or read your books? Absolutely not. The primary evidence of God's power at work in you is humility, the heart of meekness. Why is the American church so powerless today in the face of ever-growing spiritual darkness why is the church in Hollywood powerless to have any significant influence in popular culture and bring the message of Jesus to dying people in this industry? Why are our scripts, our films, our television productions, our music, our worship, all of it with such creative professionalism, having so little moral, spiritual, eternal impact? Why are Christian homes and families broken and destroyed? Why do we look exactly like the lost people around us? And why don't those lost people want the salvation and eternal life that we say we have? I have been attending church since my mother's womb. All my life, I have seen advertisements for Christian events. Never have I seen a single ad that says, come hear humble preaching, come experience humble worship. But meekness and humility are the marks of Jesus' life and of his Holy Spirit. They are the marks of his power. In 1963, I spent a year at a Bible college in Dallas. At the end of the year, I was invited not to return because of the commitment I had made to partying. Um, during that year, I had a roommate. I was 18 and Dave was uh, 25, I think. But he seemed absolutely ancient. Do you remember the time when 25 seemed ancient? Um, Dave was not an impressive man. He wasn't handsome. In fact, he was rather homely. He wasn't forceful. 
There was absolutely not a single scintillating gift that I could see in that man. I think he might have come from a farm. I don't remember. Often he spoke so quietly that you could barely hear him. Girls, I assure you, were not interested in Dave at all. I never saw him have a single date. He spent a lot of time in our room praying on his knees, which I considered wonderful but pretty weird. That's the kind of thing that old Christians were supposed to do after all the fun was gone from their lives, right? Dave was the humblest of men. I don't know what happened to him. I doubt that he became a pastor because he couldn't stand up and talk about Jesus without crying. He loved him so much. I have known far more than my share of national Christian leaders, big names with power and glory and wealth. I've spent time with them. I've done business deals with them. And I've said this in the past. If my faith depended on what I saw in those men, I would be a Buddhist. Thank God I knew Dave Gibson. The memory of him has the feeling of heaven about it. And I've known others like him too. While Dave was on his knees, I know that he was praying for me, just as my father did, who also was a very humble man. Took quite a while, but I know those prayers had a deep effect. Where does your power come from? What are your gifts? Maybe a charming personality? How about tremendous creative ability or the ability to perform? Maybe you know how to make money. I've never had that ability myself. Let me tell you something. No matter how wonderful your gifts may be, no matter how well you develop them and use them, I promise you this. The sorrows and sins and trials of this world will eat away at them like a cancer unless they are empowered and directed from outside this world. No sadder example of this could we have than Whitney Houston who died just a few weeks ago. What a tragedy her personal life became. It was said at her funeral that she loved the Lord, but seemingly this love for the Lord had no power to keep her from utter self-destruction. Is this what loving Jesus is all about? Is this all that his power can do? If so, we'd better shut up and go home. We have said that these eight statements in Matthew 5 that we call the Beatitudes are statements of power. In them, Jesus is offering another way to live. He's offering a narrow path, and few are the people who find it and, and walk it. But the steps are laid out clearly for us. The first is to be poor in spirit. How does this begin? We sign over ownership of everything in our lives that we love, our very right to ourselves, to Jesus Christ, giving him the absolute freedom to do with us and what we have, whatever he wants. This happens on your knees, my friend. It's not done lightly. Only God himself can give us the power to live by that commitment. And it's a commitment that we make before him every single day. The first step goes hand in hand with the second. When you commit your ownership, the ownership of your life to him, God opens your eyes and begins to give you the gift of mourning. You start to see what kind of a sinner you really are. It's ugly. Out of that comes a life of repentance for sin, and repentance leads to a life of compassion for broken and sinful lives. All the people around you, you start seeing them in new ways. You see that they're no better than you are. Back in the early 90s, I received a telephone call, and I wasn't, it wasn't one that you really ever want to get. Calling me was the son of a Christian man that I knew. I didn't know the caller, but I knew that his father was a strong believer. He told me that he was a Christian, that he was coming to Hollywood. His father had said that he should call me. At that time, I was involved in the leadership of several Christian groups here, and he told me he wanted to attend. I said, wonderful. Then he said there was something I should know. He had been away for nine years because he had been in prison. Why had he been in prison? He had molested a child. Now he was a registered sex offender. He said that it had happened before he was a Christian. It happened when he had been on a binge of drugs and alcohol. In prison, he had been considered a pariah, the lowest of the low. No one would associate with him in prison, not even almost any of the Christian prisoners. But one small Christian group did welcome him. He had repented of his sin and asked for forgiveness. He had been following Jesus for years now, and he hoped to start a new life on the outside. Would I accept him? 
could he come to our meetings? Meekness, humility, power under the control of heaven. But power to do what? God's power means nothing in this world if it isn't used to defend the weak, the broken, the powerless, to lift up those who are dying and lay them at Jesus' feet. Only the meekness and humility of Jesus himself can make us strong enough to do that. And always, 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 there is risk. You cannot live a life of power and faith and be unwilling to take serious risks for Jesus when you are called to do so. Whether you succeed or fail is not the issue. I don't think the true Christian compassion, which is the love of God reaching out with us through our hands, is possible unless we have confronted our own personal vileness. Unless God has shown us who we really are apart from Jesus, the potential for evil inside of every one of us is staggering. No matter how vile a person may be in actuality, truly there but for the grace of God go I. I know what modern psychology says. Once a molester, always a molester. They cannot be cured. It may not be possible to cure them, but Jesus can transform them and make them into totally new people. If there is a single person in this world who is beyond his power to save when they repent, no matter what they have done, there is no hope for me. After I received that call, I called several of the other leaders. We had a quiet conversation. We all agreed he was invited in. We did our best to build him up in the Lord while he was with us. After a couple of years, he moved to another city. I've not heard from him again. And that was a long time ago. Meekness. Power under control. Power not to serve yourself, but to stand in the gap for others. I will tell you something that I have come to believe. This power of heaven that God gives us to carry out his work in this world. There is one place that it cannot be used. I cannot use it to defend myself. God has to defend me. This is a big pill to swallow. I want to defend myself. I'm quite good at it, I think, you know. Especially I want to defend myself against false accusations. There's nothing so awful as being falsely accused and having people believe lies about you, especially when those lies come from people you thought were your friends. This is Satan's specialty, and I will tell you, friends, Hollywood loves to use it. I have experienced it. During the worst of such times, a non-Christian friend who had worked for me in the past observed from a distance what was happening, and it was quite horrible. And he said, wow, Coleman, you were always there to defend everybody else, but when you needed it, there was no one there to defend you. God was there, but he didn't choose to defend me. And my experience is trivial compared to that of so many others. Right now, there's a young Iranian pastor who's been sentenced to die for his faith. His court appeals are over. Will God save his life? We don't know. All this young man had to do was renounce Jesus, but he refused. There are millions of others whose lives God has not saved. Now, there are people who would say, well, you see, this following Christ thing just doesn't work. Where was he, Coleman, when you needed him? They don't understand that these eight statements of power are the call of Jesus to pick up our cross and follow him. We say that we want to be like him. The scripture says that he was like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep before her shearers, he was silent. When we want his life in us, this is the life that he will give. The power to defend others. Yes, in his name to set the prisoners free, but not the power to save our own lives. What does meekness mean? It means following Jesus into dangerous vulnerability. It means we could lose our careers. It means we could lose the people that we love. We could lose our lives. Power under the control of heaven is the power to die. And in doing so, to follow our master, who, though he could have called down legions of angels, was the meekest of men, dying as a criminal on a cross.
do we really want the meekness of heaven and heaven's king? I'm afraid that most American Christians don't. There's a lot of times that I don't. That's one reason why the American church, while being so apparently committed to getting the power of the Holy Spirit, is so amazingly powerless. In the future, we're going to talk a lot more about the call to suffer for Jesus' sake. Make no mistake about it. That call is for Christians in Hollywood. The kingdom of God cannot and will not advance without the kind of vulnerability, sacrifice, and suffering among its citizens in this world that Jesus had when he walked this earth. We can pray for transforming Hollywood. We can pray and pray until our jaws drop off. But if we are not willing to have his meekness and control of our lives, which will lead to the path of suffering and sacrifice, we are wasting our breath. As we conclude tonight, we need to remember one thing. Jesus didn't say, filled with God-like joy are those with power under the control of heaven, for they shall be miserable and suffer forever. No, he didn't say that, did he? He said, for they shall inherit the whole earth. I take that quite literally. Jesus is coming soon and his rewards are with him. Those who have shared in his meekness, his power under control, his suffering, are going to rule this planet by his side. In the future, we're going to talk a lot more about what it means for his followers when his kingdom comes. But I want you to think about this. If you could see the reward that he is going to give to those who are faithful to him, not all the suffering that you could experience right now for him would begin to compare, no matter how hot the fire, no matter how or what you lose, there'll be nothing compared to that glory. So run the race, my friend. Even if you're bloodied, you're stumbling, you're exhausted, do not give up. He will give you his meekness, his power under control. You can make it. The finish line is just ahead. The book of Hebrews says that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. They're watching how we run. Among those witnesses is a centurion, a brother in arms for Jesus. I want him to see me run well. Let's pray. We praise you, Lord, that you sent your son to be incredibly vulnerable and weak. You sent him in this world to, to suffer and to die for us. You sent him to be meekness personified, power under your control. We pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that you would cleanse our lives of sin, that we might truly be your servants, and that we would walk and run the race that is set before us to the glory of our King. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. No matter what you are facing today, you are not alone. If you have given your life to Jesus Christ, he is with you and he will lead you through. That isn't a theoretical statement. After following him for many years, I can tell you it really is true. If I can be of help, please let me know. You can reach me at colemanluck at gmail.com. Whatever is going on in your life, be strong. The King is standing with you. 